09-1233, Schwarzenegger v. Plata, and the related cases. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, what this Court has under review today is an extraordinary and unprecedented order issued by a three-judge district court requiring the release of between 36,000 and 45,000 inmates currently incarcerated uh, in the California penal system uh, within a two-year period. Uh, the order in this particular case is made uh, particularly remarkable because it strikes me that, it, at a minimum, it is extraordinarily premature, that it may come at some point in this process that a, an order probably substantially smaller in scope than this one may become appropriate. But if this is supposed to be an order or a remedy of last resort, uh, what the district court has done here is leapfrogged a series of steps that should have been taken ahead of uh, going this particular One route. One case, Mr. Phillips, is pending for 20 years. Is that not so? Yes, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg. So it seems to me, uh, and there were something like 70 orders from the district court, the single-judge district court in that case. That's absolutely true, and Justice no, Ginsburg. And no, no change. So how much longer do we have to wait, another 20 years? No, what Justice Ginsburg, enough? I think... Obviously, the length of time you have to wait in some ways depends on what the state of the remedial phase is in the particular case. And, and in this case, and in recognition, frankly, of the substantial problems that were inherent in the, in, the, in the penal system as it existed during the 1990s and up until the early 2000s, a receiver was appointed, specifically in the Plata class, but there was also connections between the receiver and the special master, even in the Coleman class, before the three-judge panel was convened. And under those circumstances, and given the extraordinary powers that the receiver had, had been accorded, what should have the, the most logical course, if this is supposed to be a remedy of last resort, was to allow the receiver an opportunity to implement the extraordinary powers that were conferred upon him and then see, because if it turns out that we aren't making progress. Excuse me. Uh, could you tell me, uh, uh, from your briefs, I just haven't understood what the alternative steps are. The court below talked about some proposals, like construction, and said the legislature has struck them down. Um, there's the fiscal crisis has gotten worse, so construction is really not an option. I don't see how. You wait for an option that doesn't exist. They talked about hiring more staff, but the conclusion was that even if you maximize the staff, you don't have the facilities to add more staff, which is what you need to cure the constitutional violation. So tell me what specific steps outside of this order should have been given time to be implemented. Because the receiver has basically said, I've tried. And the small progress we made um, has been reversed because the population just keeps growing, so we can never get ahead of the problem. That, so, that, so slow down from the rhetoric <laughs> and give me concrete sure. details about what the least restrictive means would have been, other than to say, throw it back to a receiver and special master who are saying, we don't have a solution. Well, I, don't think a, I don't think that's a fair characterization of what the receiver said. The receiver said that at any population, he would, in fact, get you to Oh, counsel, point. that was one statement years ago. If that's all you're relying on, well, no, that's, that's all I'm relying that may on. be all the I'm weakest argument. Tell me 
give me concrete steps that are least less restrictive. Right. Well, if you all you have to do is look at what the receiver has done over the course of the period of time since his appointment, and particularly when the second receiver was put in place. First of all, AB 900 has been enacted. There is significant construction. There has been ground broken. There are substantial facilities in place. Second, the receiver has had extraordinary success in the hiring process. There, we are close to 90 percent. Is there, in fact, less overcrowding? Because I thought that the, what this case was all about was the receiver has said, the special master has said, we can't make any progress at all until there are fewer people. We have no place to put clinics. The first step, not the last step, but given the given what we're dealing with here, the essential first step is that we have fewer people so there is more room for these health facilities, more room for staff to operate. Justice Ginsburg, the, the fundamental issue in this case seems to me is what, what is the real cause of the constitutional violation here? And the real cause of the constitutional violation here has always been the culture of disregard for the inmates. What the receiver was in, put in place for, the reason he was appointed, and properly so, this was with the state's consent, this is not over our objection, was to change that fundamental culture and to provide, one, construction, to provide increased yes, numbers. But to he, provide can't, he can't provide construction when the state doesn't supply the money for it. Except that since the, the August 8, 2008 period of time, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars have gone to construction specifically, and more than $4 billion have been spent on the provision of health care in this particular system. And a, a great deal of that then is because could, of then the receiver. Could, then if, if, there, if there are these great changes in circumstances so that now the medical care can be administered in something approaching a decent way, you could go back to the single-judge district court and say, I'm moving on to 60B. Circumstances have changed. It's no longer the case that it's impossible to render decent health care. Yeah, Justice Ginsburg, I don't think we could get that relief from the single-judge district court unless you're asking me to actually seek to remove the entirety of the claim. I mean, the, the order that says that we have to get to 137.5 percent of the design Operate the, the design capacity within two years is a three-judge district court decision. So you go back to that panel because it invited right. you to. It said if circumstances change, come back. Right, but that will always be the case, Justice Sotomayor. The, the fundamental question here is Congress shifted dramatically the approach that you're supposed to take as a court of equity in this context. This is supposed to be a matter of last resort, which would mean that you would give the receiver a full opportunity to do what the receiver what the receiver said, the best statement that seemed to me to summarize it, is in his brief on page 9. He has about two paragraphs. And as you read that two paragraphs, it sounds as if overcrowding is a big, big cause of this problem, which is horrendous, which, if you think it's accurately described in the mental case, in the first page, two paragraphs. Now, if that's a fair description from the record, it's a horrendous problem. Well, what the receiver says is overcrowding is a big cause of it. And then he says, I think we've discovered you actually can provide care, and certainly our plan and turnaround plan believes we can provide constitutional levels of care no matter what the population is. 
So then you look to the care and turnaround plan, and it says <coughs> spend $8 billion building more buildings. And then the legislature rejected it. Okay? And then now, there we are. More time. What's supposed to happen? No, but, Justice Breyer, the legislature also approved a smaller but nevertheless multi-billion dollar construction. No, I was 2.31 or something like well, that. Well, I, I, I And did they approve the 2.3? Is me, that in place? 2.35. Did they approve that? Yes, they did okay. approve that. So he said we need spend. eight. We need eight. And they approve 2.35. Right. And the receiver and Is there any evidence here that suggests that 2.35 is sufficient to cure the constitutional violation? Well, I don't know whether it will get you there or not. I take it from your answer. The answer is no. There is no evidence. Well, there is the evidence that the receiver asked for contempt for not getting the $8 billion and withdrew that motion. So, obviously, there is some sense in which the receiver is reasonably satisfied with $2.35 billion as an opening gambit. But, again, all of this goes to, to what is, at least from my perspective, the fundamental question the Court should have evaluated in the first instance, which is, are we ready yet to yeah. give up hope at this point? Well, what he says, what the receiver says about the 2.35, that it is a significant step farther. It is certainly better than no construction at all. However, that is not equivalent to a conclusion that that current compromise will result in sustainable constitutional health care at current population density levels. That's what he said about it. So, so we have his views, and I'm back to my question. What else is supposed to happen? Well, there is your question. Justice Breyer, the, when, when the receiver says that, now remember, he says at current, at current population levels, he doesn't suggest, and, and his brief is very clear, that it doesn't urge this Court to affirm the particular order in this case. And, Mr. And, and can, can I yeah. just finish this? And, and the reality is, is that the population levels have dropped pretty significantly since August, since the trial in this particular case. And given the uh, actions by the legislature in AB 18, actions of the legislature is in AB 900, there are both a lot of expenditures on the table and substantial reductions in the population size. And, and so, therefore, even under the receivers. But, but do we have an information about that substantial reduction? I mean, in this record, it just seems to be that it's, it's uh, no, no matter how many efforts have been made, the population goes up. And now you say that the population has gone down. From what point in time and how much has it gone down? Well, it's down to around, as I, as I understand it, about 147,000, up from a high of around 165 to 170,000. And it has dropped, as we know, because there's been a change in the good time credits. There's been a, a significant number of transfers. I mean, that was the purpose of the governor's proclamation. So it's possible that within the two-year period you're going to hit the mark. If you — that's what the lower I, I think courts, it's unlikely. That's what the three-judge panel said, which is if you implement — most of the proposals being made, you are likely to hit the mark. So what you're saying is you're going to do it. And if you don't, they invited you to come back. And you, you really don't think that if you hit 140 percentage that the court is going to um, order an immediate release of the 2.5 percent over the limited set. It's going to ask you what have you put into place to reach that level over what additional period of time. 
I mean, there's a, a core sort of federalism answer and then a, a basic sort of factual point to be made here. Let me make the second one first, and I want to come back to the, what you may regard as rhetorical, but nevertheless, I think, important, which is that when we made our initial proposal to the three-judge court suggesting what we thought would be a reasonable reduction within a reasonable period of time, it was met with both a motion for contempt and summary re- rejection out of hand, notwithstanding So what are we fighting about? So are we fighting about that the plan was wrong, or are we fighting about that you're angry that you were told to do it in two years, in 22 years, as opposed to in do it in 25 years? Is that is that what you're no, I think objecting to? No, this goes to the federalism point. Can, well, can you do it in five years? I don't know. I, you know, if balancing all of the policies that the state has to take into account, can it get there? And is that in the best interest of the state of California? If it is, yes. Well, the best interest of the state of California, isn't it to deliver adequate constitutional care to the people that it incarcerates? That's a constitutional obligation. Absolutely. And California recognizes So when are you going to get to that? When are you going to avoid the needless deaths that were reported in this record? When are you going to avoid or uh, get around people sitting in their feces for days in a day state? When are you going to get to a point where you're going to deliver care that's going to be adequate? But don't be rhetorical. Hmm. I'll do my best. Thank you, Your Honor. I mean, first of all, you know, if you look at the receiver's 2009 death review, which came out in September 2010, specifically says that there's been a significant downward trend over the past four years. The suicide, the 25 suicides in 09 were 66 percent of the average of the preceding three years, and the nine homicides were 60 percent of the average. There have been significant improvements. And the more important point in response to your specific question, Justice Sotomayor, is that the, the record in this case was cut off in August of 2008. And so what we have of are but, but, but The problem I have with that, Mr. Phillips, is that at some point the Court has to say, you've been given enough time, uh, the, the constitutional violation still persists, as the State itself acknowledges. Well, overcrowding, I'm not sure we would the, say that overcrowding is the principal cause, as the experts have testified, and it's now time for a remedy. The court can't uh, has to at some point focus on the remedy, and that's what it did. And that seemed to me was a perfectly reasonable decision. Justice Kennedy, I, I agree with everything you say, except, and I even agree with the last thing because you know you needed a significant remedy. There's no question about it. The, but you got a significant remedy when the receiver was appointed in 2005 and implemented a program in 2006. I mean, how much our, time do you think the receiver needed? I mean, how much time did? Did, should the court have given the receiver to develop his plan and to try to implement his plan? Well, there's no, Justice Kagan, there's no specific time frame. I mean, obviously, we believe that we're entitled to a reasonable opportunity to comply with the receiver's orders and to bring ourselves ultimately into compliance with the Constitution. Well, well at some and, point, I mean, the state itself said that if it had, I think, seven years, it could get down to 137.5 and didn't seem to object to that. No, that's good. Justice Kennedy, you know, given all of the other constraints, et cetera. Again, there's a fundamental difference between what you do under the hammer of a district court order, which is what we have under these circumstances, and what the state will do. That said, the state is absolutely committed. I mean, again, to go back to what is the root cause of the constitutional violation, it's not overcrowding. I mean, when, when California violated the constitutional rights of the mentally ill in the 1990s, the, the prisons weren't crowded. 
It was because there was a fundamental lack of attentiveness to medical care under those circumstances. And, and that's unfortunate, to be sure, more than that. But, but that was the reason, to go back to your point, Justice Kennedy, that's why the receiver, which is an extraordinary remedy, to confer upon a private individual the entire authority to run the California Department of Corrections, not just simply a facility or anything like that, but the entire Department of Corrections medical and medical health provision is incredible. But I thought that officer himself said, I can't do this without, as a first step, reducing the population. Nothing else is going to work until we reduce the population to the point where there is room for clinics, room for uh, medical personnel to operate. I mean, that was the view of the district judge, the uh, special master in one case, the receiver in the other case, everybody, and they all agreed. Reducing the population is not going to cure it, it's not going to make everything perfect, but without doing that as a first step, nothing, there will be no cure. Well, Justice Ginsburg, even if you accept that, and, and I don't think that's precisely how you, I would interpret what the receiver said under these circumstances anyway. But, but even if you accept that, the idea of a 137.5 percent design cap that has to be implemented within fewer than two years is, is a remedy that's neither necessary nor sufficient. It is not aimed at the specific class. It doesn't remedy the specific federal rights as required by the Prisoner's Litigation Reform Act. I don't get the question because what you can't have a remedy just limited to the class. The class wants to have clinics. They want to have personnel who function someplace outside of a boom closet. So you, you can't deal with this problem by just dealing with the mentally ill the people with medical problems, you have to provide space for facilities. I, I think, Justice Ginsburg, the, the fundamental point here is that it may eventually be that you have to get to that stage. But if you look at the receiver's reports since August 2008, which consistently analyzed this issue, and they say, and we've been able successfully to bring in very qualified personnel, we have significantly larger numbers, we know there is construction in place. It may not be as substantial as what I originally proposed. It is nevertheless very significant. And, and Congress was very explicit that the remedy of a prisoner release order should be the remedy of what a prisoner release order. What would I look at on this? Well, I, it's a big record. What I did was I, I, it re refers to online evidence, and I went and looked at the pictures. And the pictures are pretty horrendous to me. And I would say page 10 of the religious group's brief, for example, shows you one of them. And what they're saying is, it's, it's obvious, just look at it. You cannot have mental health facilities that will stop people from killing themselves, and you cannot have medical facilities that will stop staph and tubercular infection in conditions like this. And then you look at them. Now, you've looked at them. I've looked at them. And what is the answer to that? There's nothing in here that the, 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 the special master said $8 billion is the answer. And they well, haven't come that. close. So how can I, or you if you were in my position, what would you say in an opinion that says that these three judges who have 200 pages of findings, what would you say 
to, to as an answer to what I just said? I would say that the Prisoner's Litigation Reform Act has a series of very specific requirements that the Federal Court has to comply with, and that in deciding to go to a three-judge district court in the first instance, you have to examine the orders that are in place and whether those orders have had a reasonable time within which to operate. Yes, but the State state did not claim uh, that either order in either case uh, has succeeded in achieving a remedy. You never claimed that. Well, it depends on what you mean and, by. And, and, and just, just while I have, have your attention for a moment, uh, I have this problem with the case. Over, overcrowding is, of course, always the cause. If I'm running at a hotel, if I'm looking at a highway system, I need highways. What is the number of cars? Uh, the problem, bad service in the hotel. Well, it's the number of employees per per guest. I mean, that's fairly simple. Now, I recognize, of course, that Congress has had imposed a special duty on us, but I think it means that overcrowding must not be ordered unless that is the only efficacious remedy in, in a right. permissible period of time. And it seems to me there's massive expert testimony to support that proposition on the part uh, of the prisoners. I, I, th- I mean, the, it seems to me that, first of all, I'm not sure that's consistent with the language. It's the primary cause of the constitutional violation, not the primary impediment to the implementation of a specific remedy. So I think that's still a a difficult and open question as to how to proceed. But it still strikes me that the sequence that Congress envisions and and the one that would make the most sense and ultimately the one that hopefully would accommodate both the plaintiff's interests and the state's interests and the Department of Corrections' interests is to allow the receiver to stay on a course that, candidly, I think will, in fact, get you there. I mean, again, one of the real flaws in this case, Justice Kennedy, is nobody doubts for a moment that there have been very significant violations of constitutional rights years gone by, and indeed a failure on the mental health side ultimately to get get to the point where we are in fact providing a significant remedy. The reality is is that in the course of the last three to four years, under the guidance of of the receiver, who coordinates with the special master on the mental health side and does it with the cooperation of the state of California, there have been significant there has been significant movement in the, in the right direction. And if the court had not jumped the gun and said, look, we're not going to let that part play itself out. We are going to leap ahead and go to a three-judge court and go to the, prison, to the prisoner release order, this process would have played itself out, and we wouldn't be here under All this talk about uh, what the receiver may think can be done seems a little bit perplexing to me because the receiver – did not testify before the three-judge court. Isn't that correct? That, that's true. We're not allowed to, to question him. We were not allowed to. to and now he's submitted what is styled an amicus brief where he doesn't address issues of law. He explains his views about uh, he tries to explain prior statements and supplement those prior statements. Is that proper? Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a long-time believer that amicus briefs pretty much open season in terms of anything you want to present on them. But, I mean, obviously, I, I think well, is that true? clearly a better system. Can a witness testify? Can a witness submit an amicus brief that consists of an affidavit? Uh, no, Your Honor, it's obviously not appropriate. And, and look, one of the things I thought the, the, about, the, uh, that brief was filed because the, uh, there were – in your presentations, there were representations about the special master, and he filed that brief to say, you must understand this in context. I was making a speech at the club. 
So he wanted to put in context what you had used. You had quoted his statements. Well, um, to be sure, we, although, candidly, we had, we had referred to some of those same statements even in the jurisdictional statement in this litigation. This has been part of the case for quite some time. So I, I don't know what motivated the special master to file uh, an out-of-time brief, on, or, I mean, the receiver to file an out-of-time brief, but I understand. But, we, you know, we didn't object to it, so long as the Court was of a mind to, to hear from the receiver. But I do think the most important part of that, or to keep in mind in this context, is the receiver didn't ask for this Court to affirm. The receiver simply clarified certain statements that had been made and tried to say, as, as Justice Alito described, put them into some kind of context. And that's, and that's fine. And we obviously don't have any quarrel with, with that particular presentation. But I do think to say that the receiver has insisted that he cannot get to a constitutionally permissible result without the order that's been imposed in this particular case is, is simply not consistent with either the record and certainly not consistent with that amicus. Well, record. but the experts testified to that effect. I mean, experts made the, certainly reached that specific conclusion, but this Court has recognized and the, and the strike force and the Governor's, Governor's Commission reached the same conclusion. The, well, the strike team, I think they call it. Right. But, again, it seems to me there's a very, very, very big difference between what do you need to accomplish in order to remedy whatever the constitutional violation is, recognizing in the first instance that the biggest element of an Eighth Amendment violation is the deliberate indifference prong, which absolutely seems to me to have been completely eliminated by the conduct of the State over the course of the last three to four years. There is no evidence. What specifically will happen? I mean, at, at the moment, you know, we could go through we have all these briefs. I mean, there are all these experts, all the reports. Everybody's saying uh, you need to spend the money. And we have, uh, if you really want to cure the constitutional violation, we have the legislature rejecting $8 million, but two, which does 2.35. And uh, uh, so, and nothing, and avoid, and give us more time. I mean, I read the newspaper. It doesn't seem to me California's been voting a lot of money for new programs. Uh, the the uh, uh, what what is it what is it specifically that would happen that would cure this problem? Were we to say, I mean, a big human rights problem? What would we say? Uh, what would happen if we were to say, no, this panel's wrong? What would happen that would cure the problem? Well, it depends, I suppose, in some ways on how you. A constitutional problem, which the state itself right. admits is constitutional, a state with a governor who said publicly that there is this tremendous safety and health problem uh, in the prisons. What, what, what would happen? Well, if the court were to conclude that the three-judge panel shouldn't have been convened, that'll be one outcome. If the court concludes that it was appropriate to convene it, but 137.5 percent is not narrowly tailored, it'd be a different one. Either way, it will go back, obviously, to a court of equity. The receiver is in place. The receiver has a comprehensive plan in place, which he is implementing as we speak. I mean, you know, it, one of the things well, that's One piece of it, you said uh, something about the 2.35 million. They didn't come up with the eight million, but they did come up with the two point three five billion. And then I'm just looking at this brief for the receiver, and there's a footnote, page eleven, footnote three, that says, "No, that money isn't there. It's dependent upon several approvals that have not yet been secured, and that such approvals ultimately may not be forthcoming." Well, I mean, 400 million of it has already been spent. The rest of it has already been 
earmarked for this particular purpose, and there is — and the expectation from the State of California is that money is, is going forward. Construction is, as we speak, underway. And the one thing we do know but is not that the receiver asks for a check to get five, money. I mean, he, I think you did say earlier that this was a, a done deal, $2.35 billion, but this is a note telling us it's not so. Well, the receiver is, is saying it's not etched in stone. I understand that. But our, our assumption and our expectation and our belief is that that money is going to be used for construction. There are projects that are finished, there are projects that are underway, and there are projects that are scheduled to begin within the next six weeks, all of which will be funded uh, out of that $2.35 And one project that the Joint Legislative Budget Committee said no, no. Going to give you the money for that. They asked for additional information, to be sure. But, but the expectation, again, from the governor, both this governor and the governor-elect, is that that money will ultimately be approved and that that facility will be built. And we're moving along very rapidly to get that construction underway, for this, because we're talking about enormous uh, facilities under these uh, particular circumstances, Justice. Mr. Stanford. Phillips, my trouble listening to you is that it seems as though you're asking us to refine facts. Um, you know, you have these judges who have been involved in these cases since the beginning, for 20 years in the Plata case, who thought, uh, we've done everything we can. The receiver has done everything he can. This just isn't going anywhere, and it won't go anywhere until we can address this root cause of the problem. And that was the view of the judges who had been closest to the cases from the beginning and the view of the, the three-judge court generally. So how can we reach your results essentially without, you know, refinding the facts that they've been dealing with for 20 years? The, the fundamental problem with the fact-finding in this case, there are actually two fundamental problems. First of all, remember that the receiver gets appointed, and then three months later you get a motion for a three-judge court. The three-judge court convenes itself before the receiver has even finalized the the comprehensive plan to bring everybody into compliance in the first instance. So the reality is that's, that's the fundamental legal error I'm asking this Court to correct. But even if you get beyond that and you're looking at the primary cause analysis, it seems to me that's a, it's at, most a, at best a mixed question of law and fact. And it's the kind of standard that this Court ought to analyze to determine in the first instance and on an independent review whether or not the overcrowding is, quote, the primary cause of the violation. And what makes that inquiry particularly appropriate for this Court, as opposed to simply slavishly adhering, de deferring to the District Court in this circumstance, is that the District Court arbitrarily cut off the record. In August of 08, there have been enormous developments since then, and there were Can enormous developments. Can you explain something about that? It was confusing in the brief, Mr. Phillips. I thought that um, the State had said we don't want the plaintiffs to tour these facilities anymore. We don't want to have discovery go beyond what it was, some date in 2008. Uh, I thought that it, it was the state that was urging we don't need any more discovery. We don't want any more inspection tours. So how could, how could the, um, Plaintiffs su submit more than they did when the state said it's enough. It, 2008 should be the cutoff. Well, there's, there's a huge difference between not allowing formal tours and all of the rigmarole that goes with that, which is what the state specifically objected to. 
But what the State wanted to do and what the interveners on our side and even greater vehemence wanted to do was to bring forward evidence that proved that in the interim period of time, there have been, in fact, significant improvements. As I, as I sit here today, Justice Kennedy, you said it's conceded that we, that we are in constitutional violation. It is conceded that we have been in constitutional violation. I, I don't know whether but then today don't you have we are in violation. If, if you, have, you concede that you have been in a, a constitutional violation, then it seems to me you have the burden of showing that's no longer the case. That's, that's Generally so in, in, uh, in Council, did you I'm, I'm they, sorry, they, did you they, answer they, Justice Ginsburg's question first? Yeah, Justice Ginsburg, I, I understand what the ordinary rule would be in a, of a court of equity dealing with a constitutional violation, but we're talking about an order entered under the Prisoner's Litigation Reform Act, and it's quite clear that statute couldn't be any plainer, that it shifts the burden significantly onto the plaintiff when you are going to go for remedy as extreme as, as insisting that somewhere between potentially 36,000 and 45,000 inmates be released within a, within a two-year period of time. Again, I could go back, you know, the receiver has not had, at the time that all of this took place, the receiver had been appointed. The receiver had devised a plan. The receiver is currently spending an enormous amount of money, $4 billion on health care, to, to get the system uh, moving in the right direction with the right attitude in order to bring ourselves without question into constitutional compliance. The truth is we haven't really had an assessment of where we are in the, in the constitutional well, compliance. Well, maybe you're talking about one of the cases, but the other one, and this is the newer one, 2000 instituted in 2001, but what about the one that started out in 1990? Yeah, no, Coleman is obviously a much, is a much more serious problem. I, I don't doubt that, but I, it seems to, and, and if the court were to conclude ultimately that Coleman ought to go back for another analysis based on the problems there, I, I, I could understand that, and it would be a very different prisoner release order under those circumstances, because then you'd have to take out all of the evidence with respect to Plata and let that play out. But even that, it seems to me, would be a mistake under these circumstances where the special master and the receiver have been, in a sense, joined at the hip in a variety of ways. And it only makes sense because the, the receiver is controlling the provision of medical care in the CDCR, and the special master is taking care of or trying to promote a, a very small slice of that. So in the scheme of things, as you might expect, the receiver consistently gets the ultimate authority to make the decisions to help provide the kind of resources, both in quality and quantity and staff and construction and access to the health care. Counsel, uh, it, this issue about evidence, did you proffer to the judge anywhere in this record what the additional evidence it was that you wanted to show? I know that the decrease in suicides um, happened post-trial, so you couldn't have proffered that pre-trial. Right. Um, but you run the prisons. I presume that you could have yourself, without discovery, set forth a proffer for the court that says we had a wait time between diagnosis and treatment that was 60 days, 90 days, 120 days in the past, and we've reduced that down now to two weeks or whatever the reality is. Right. Why didn't you, you keep saying because we were the district blocked, court, but Because the district court could not have been plainer. And, and when the Intervenors Council stood up in the opening statement 
and said, I want to start talking about the, the beneficial changes and where the status is today as opposed to where it was way back when, the, the three-judge court, or at least one member of the three-judge court, said, we have been as clear as we can be that we are not entertaining any evidence on that point. So the notion of coming forward with a proffer, while technically it might have been, is clearly a futile act, and we had already annoyed the judges on our side by even making reference to it. So I don't think it's an appropriate uh, response to say that we should have put forward more, because the truth is we would have had more. Court invited you to proffer that evidence that went to the appropriateness of the remedy. So you didn't have to proffer it. It viewed you as saying we're no longer violating, constitutionally violating um, the Eighth Amendment. Um, instead, it said we'll take whatever you have to proffer to show that the remedy is inappropriate. Right, but Justice Sotomayor, the, 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 there is a to my mind at least, a complete disconnect by saying, I'm not going to tell you exactly where the constitutional violation is today. We're not going to get into that. We're, not, we're just going to assume there's a constitutional violation. Now, prove to me that the remedy, you know, what remedy will or will not work under those circumstances. It seems to me the exact opposite is the way to do it. You determine where the constitutional violation is. Your time is about to expire. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Spector. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. For 20 years, the overcrowding crisis has caused prisoners suffering from psychosis and life-threatening illnesses to languish in their cells because treatment facilities have no room for them. Prisoners are committing suicide at a rate twice the national average, and more than two-thirds of those suicides are preventable. The Are you talking about current figures or past? Tell uh, us the date of the figures. <coughs> sure. That's from the trial court's opinion. Uh, that's from the That's what I thought. Yeah. How do you address your adversary's point yes, that the adequacy of a remedy can't be measured unless you measure the state of the situation at the time the remedy is imposed? Well, I think, Your Honor, there was massive amounts of evidence about the constitutional violations that existed at the time that the remedy was imposed. And if I can point to uh, the jurisdictional statement, one appendix, uh, page 30A, the Court said, nonetheless, as we described below, fundamental unconstitutional deficiencies caused primarily by overcrowding continue to exist. You didn't take any evidence on the point, I thought. No, Your Honor, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not correct, with all respect. They took massive amounts of evidence up to the day of trial about all the conditions uh, as they relate to the remedy. And those Did conditions were current conditions? Current, current as of the time what of was, the trial. What was uh, your, your friend talking about when he said that they rejected any okay. effort to show the current situation? Well, my friend and I have a disagreement, but I think uh, Justice Sotomayor um, accurately captured it. What the three-judge panel said is, look, we're not going to um, — you can't — this isn't the place for you to come in and say uh, everything's fine, it's, 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 everything's constitutional. What the three-judge court did say is we will consider — and they did, in fact, consider all the evidence from the state. They had experts 
from the state to the prisons in August of 2008. Those experts wrote reports. They testified, and they testified about the conditions current. And one of them from the this mental health was side in 2008, said, and, and that was the time of the trial, Your Honor. It was the discovery. They had a, they had a cutoff date of some two months before the trial began. in August, and the trial started. And that was in November. a cut, and, and that, and, but b- before that point, uh, the experts that were had testified were aware of the conditions that existed. Exactly, Your Honor. And, and when was the remedy imposed? The remedy, well, the final order came down. Well, the, the close of evidence was in December of 2008. That was in the, in the one-judge court, in the district No, no, no. In the three-judge court, the, the three-judge court closed evidence in December of 2008. We then argued the case after the post-trial briefing in February of 2009. Then the court came out with a tentative decision about 20 days later. And then in August of 2009, it uh, issued the 183-page opinion and the order. That's the issue. I'm sorry. Let me just keep track here. The the evidence was cut off when in 2008? The trial closed in uh, December of 2008 after all the parties had submitted all their evidence. Then there was post-trial briefing for a month. Then we had argument uh, in February of that year. And then a few, few weeks later, they issued a brief summary of their conclusions in an attempt to get the state and the parties to settle. The you, you don't dispute the statement I have. It's in the response of the interveners that between October 2006 and October 2010, the population of the adult facilities declined by 14,832 inmates? Well, um, I, I agree with my friend, Mr. Phillips, that the population has declined by about 10,000 prisoners. Most of that uh, decline has been due to a transfer uh, to out-of-state prisons. And true, there's some, some amount of it has been uh, as a result of the marginal increase in good time credits, which the state elected to pursue on its own. Mm-hmm. What about the argument that there was uh, evidence that should have been admitted but that was not with reference to new construction? Well, I don't... There was no evidence that wasn't uh, cons- that was offered that wasn't considered by the three-judge panel, Your Honor. They um, considered all the evidence. Their 183-page uh, opinion is scrupulous in considering all the evidence, both uh, that supported the order and, the, and they distinguished the evidence and made credibility determinations based on the evidence that that was contrary. But uh, there, yes, sir. Could you explain what the connection is between? the 137.5% figure and the constitutional violations relating to the provision of medical care in general and treatment for for mental illness. My understanding of the 137.5% figure is that that has to do with the the total number of prisoners in uh, in the system in relation to design capacity. Isn't that right? That's correct, Your Honor. Now, what, what does the, that doesn't speak to uh, the number of personnel who uh, are available in the system to attend to medical needs or mental illness. It doesn't speak to uh, the extent of the facilities that are available for those purposes. It seems to be, there seems to be a disconnect between those two. Could you explain why that is narrowly tailored? Yes, Your Honor. Um, there was, the court made findings that 137.5% was the maximum number 
of prisoners that of, of the capacity of the design capacity of the prison that the prison could house that would enable the state to provide to have all those things that you just mentioned uh, staffing facilities medication management be effective and reach the actual prisoners who are ill seriously see that's what i don't understand you could have a could you not have a prison where the cells are, are somewhat crowded, and, and 137.5 percent of design capacity is not right. uh, is not unconstitutional in itself, is it? No, it's you could have, is a remedy. It's a remedy, Your Honor. Or you could have a a prison where the uh, the cells themselves are crowded, and yet there are other facilities available for medical care and plenty of staff to attend to those things. So what's the connection? Well, that's, that's and, and you're right. If, if there were, um, the cells were crowded, but uh, the prison had all the other facilities available, then there might not be a problem. You have to understand, well, you sh I hope you can understand that um, in this case, the prisons were built to double cell the prisoners, but they weren't built to provide 200% of health care needs. So as soon as they started to double cell these prisoners, they could meet their, their literal housing needs in the space of the cell, but they couldn't meet the needs of their health care. And that's why, uh, Your Honor, the 137.5% figure is reasonable because the court went almost a third overcrowding above what all the experts recommended. But why order the release of around 40,000 prisoners? Uh, many of whom, perhaps uh, the great majority of whom, are not going to be within the class in either of these lawsuits. Why order the release of all those people rather than ordering the provision of the construction of facilities for medical care, facilities to treat mental illness, hiring of staff to treat mental illness? Why not go directly to the problem rather than uh, address what seems to be a different issue altogether? Well, I'll, I have two responses to that, and they're both a little separate. The first point, it's important to understand that this is not a release order. It's a population crowding reduction order. The court is not ordering the state to throw open the gates of its doors and release the people. They can reduce crowding through more transfers to out-of-state. To your construction point, if the state so chooses, it can uh, construct new facilities to increase the capacity, and the three-judge panel said, if you increase the capacity, you can increase the population. Uh, the point about well, if all they do is to build more cells, they're not going to address the problems. Exactly. Are they? So that goes to the second part of your question, which is why don't they try other things like ordering the prison to hire more doctors, ordering better medication management, all of those kind of things. And the answer to that is in the appendix to the appellee's Coleman brief, which lists 70 discrete orders. Uh, which uh, the Coleman Court, single-judge Coleman Court, tried over a period of, of 15 years, which have proven singularly to be ineffective. And that's why the Court analyzed all of those things. The trial court analyzed all those things, and it made a finding of fact that, uh, based on the statements by the special master, by the receiver's reports, and by the general state of the horrendous conditions which we have in these prisons, that those discrete orders would not solve the problem. And given the level of harm... I, I still don't get it. You're saying that they were ordered to do a variety of things that directly address the problem, and they didn't comply. So as a re no. in, in order to uh, 
in order to provide some kind of a remedy, we're going to order something else that doesn't address the problem that, no, that these lawsuits aim at addressing. No, Your Honor. To the contrary, uh, Justice Alito, we — I think the Court believes, based on that fact that it found, that this would be an effective remedy. All of the testimony that they heard from experts from Texas, from Pennsylvania, from Washington State, all of whom had suffered — had dealt with crowding in their prison systems, have said that when you reduce the crowding, that's the critical thing that you have to do now, because unless you reduce the crowding, nothing else is going to work. And the Court found that that was exactly true. Nothing else over 20 years in one case and over eight years in another case has worked. And, and, and all the, as Justice Kennedy said, massive amounts of evidence show that the primary reason it hasn't worked is one singular word, overcrowding. And when you reduce overcrowding, the prison will be able to operate and will be able to provide those services that it can't provide now, so the doctors will have room to be able to work, which they don't have now. The, uh, there will be less prisoners, so officers will be able to take them from one place to another to get treatment. There won't be so many lockdowns which inhibit care. It's still a very uh, indirect way of addressing the problem, and it has collateral consequences. If, if I were a citizen of California, I would be concerned about the release of 40,000 prisoners. And I don't care what you term it, a prison release order or, or whatever the Crowd. terminology you used was. If 40,000 prisoners are going to be released, uh, you really believe that if you were to come back here two years after that, uh, you would be able to say they haven't, uh, they haven't contributed to an increase in crime in, in the state of California. In the, in the amicus brief that was submitted by a number of states, uh, there is an extended discussion of the effect of one prisoner release order with which I am familiar, and that was in Philadelphia. And after a period of time, uh, they, they tallied up what the cost of that was, the number of murders, the number of rapes, the number of armed robberies, the number of assaults. You know, that's not going to happen in California? Your Honor, um, this trial court found, based on um, 50 pages of its opinion, based on expert testimony, not only from our experts, but from the state's experts, from the intervener's experts, they all came to the unanimous conclusion that there are methods that, by which you can reduce crowding which will not increase crime and that are safe. The Secretary of the Department of Corrections, who was the Secretary at the time of trial, so testified that he was in favor, for example, of increasing prisoners' good time credits. That's one way to reduce crowding. Uh, and moreover, there was statistical evidence saying, looking at all the other states that had uh, reduced their prison population over a period of about 15 years, and they all came to the same conclusion. All of those studies came to the same conclusion, which is there's no, uh, there is no increase in the crime rate. But that's now, not what, that is not what the three-judge district court determined. The Prisoner Litigation Reform Act requires that court to give substantial weight to adverse impact on public yes. safety. Yes, sir. And, when, and then it said to the state, look, you've come up with a plan that gets you to 137.5 in two years. Yes, Your Honor. The state did, and the state did not say, uh, emphatically did not say, this is not going to have an adverse impact uh, on public safety. You right, follow the, the double negative there. But, uh, uh, and what the district court said, it didn't examine that. It said, well, we're sure the state's not going to do anything 
that has an adverse impact on public safety. I'm looking at page 4A of the jurisdictional statement. Right. And said, and, and so it did not make those determinations, but the PLRA requires it to determine that what it's ordering, or at least gives substantial weight to the public safety issue. So isn't that a basis for uh, uh, overturning the remedy that's imposed here? I re respectfully disagree with that. And I'll well, I thought you, you would. But <laughs> <laughs> At least it's respectful. Um, 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 I'll tell you why I think that. Um, the uh, court examined all of the methods that are commonly used and that the governor himself has proposed to reduce crowding. You, you, the governor himself wanted to reduce the prison population by 37,000. That was in one of his legislative enactments, and the Secretary of Corrections testified that those proposals were safe. Did he want to do it within the two-year period the district it, court yeah, ordered? Yes, Your Honor, he did. He submitted legislation to the legislature for that, and the legislature um, wouldn't, wouldn't take it. And the governor actually said, reacting to that, after a riot at Chino, which was partly at one of the at Chinos of prison in California, uh, a riot, he said, and the quote, and, and, and the politicians in Sac Sacramento have swept the problem under the rug. Right, right. Now, my, my question and is specifically with respect to the two-year plan, right. and I'd like an answer to that. Yes. As I look at this record, I don't see that the district court did what was required by the Act with respect to the plan that it's ordering. It just simply said, oh, we're sure, I'm sure the state wouldn't do anything to hurt public safety after telling the state, you've got to give me a plan in two years that gets to 137.5. Right. Well, I think all of them, it didn't, it didn't analyze the plan because the court was trying, well, there was no plan. The, the court, what, they, what the court did was it said, uh, we want to give the state the maximum flexibility for comedy reasons to determine how best to remedy the constitutional violations. Now, I'm certain, and they said, they also said that we're sure the state can do it in a safe way, um, but it's not well, our I stuff. said we're sure because, but, uh, there are because we trust, I'm just quoting from 4A, we trust that the state will comply with its duty to ensure public safety as it implements the constitutionally required reduction. The state is saying it cannot meet the 137.5 in two years without an adverse impact right. on public safety. And the, that's the state's position. It had right. been the state's position all along. The court's findings that a population reduction of this magnitude were clear, and they're not shown to be clearly erroneous here. They, the court said point blank that we're, we're we, we, it's our finding that the state can reduce the population to its current levels uh, from its current levels to 137.5 safely. They made Council, that finding, and it court, hasn't been shown to be clearly erroneous. So they didn't have to uh, look at particulars in, in an effort to give the state the maximum flexibility. They wanted to allow the state to choose the methods that it wanted. If, if the state, if what the do you have they can do it. Of okay. course they could do it safely if they built, you know, umpteen new prisons. But they can but also that, do it safely. You know, that's pie in the sky. No, that's it isn't, not going to because they can also do it safely by good time credits. They can do it safely. Well, doesn't by good time credits let let people out who would not otherwise be out? Just a, a you know, the the evidence was a trial, and the court's finding about that evidence was, and the state officials so testified that giving prisoners good time credits uh, is not 
a threat to public safety. That's Council, Mr. Spector, why wouldn't it have been the better course for the state, uh, excuse me, for the court to say, you know, the state says it can do this in five years right. without any public safety problem. So why don't we let them take those five years? Because, Your Honor, um, as Justice Ginsburg and others have been saying before, the constitutional violations have been ongoing for 20 years. We're dealing here with cases of life and death and serious injury. And after all these years, in, when, they, when they heard the evidence that, that said that population could be re and they made the findings, which the state doesn't uh, argue were clearly erroneous, when they made those findings, uh, that it could be reduced safely, they had an obligation to uh, provide a remedy that would provide constitutionally adequate care in the safest manner possible, in I the think quickest manner counsel. possible. I think Justice Sotomayor has been yes, patient here. Not in responding to justice, to the Chief Justice, didn't the district court discuss different safe ways yes. of reducing the population? Yes. And said, we're not imposing them because we want the state to do, to choose among them. Yes, Your Honor. As I've looked at the state's final plan, I thought that they had, in fact, not only accepted all of the recommendations, but they added a couple of additional remedies that the court had not suggested. Yes, Your Honor. Is it a fair statement that the district, that the three-judge panel was saying, if you do these things, that's their finding? It, you can do it without affecting public safety? Wasn't that what they were saying? Yes, Your Honor. If I didn't make that clear, I meant to. Well, but the second but, and more important question is going back to something that Justice Scalia asked you, which was, um, you made the statement that no one was stopped from proffering evidence about prison conditions up till two months before the trial. So uh, what evidence was excluded? Nothing, um, nothing. What point is the other side making that they were excluded from making? Well, as we said in our briefs, Your Honor, there was no evidence that was excluded. And, in fact, um, the uh, uh, state's witnesses testified about conditions some of the conditions current as of the day of the of the testimony. So it was very current and nothing was excluded. That way, even if the Court made a ru ruling which it was error, which we don't believe it was, there was absolutely no prejudice. What is, what is the number of the, I mean, I, I was puzzled by the same thing that Justice Sotomayor was. I read on page 253 of the appendix a conclusion where the district court said, it is our conclusion that they can reduce this by how many people? What is it, 30,000? Uh, That's a lot. 35,000. 35,000. That this can be done safe. Yes. Preceding page, whatever that was, two, I have it, it was 253. Right. There are about six pages where they summarize evidence from all kinds of criminologists that say, for example, there are 17,000 technical parole violators that are being sent to prison who haven't committed additional crimes, and they could perhaps be released from some of the time that they're spending in prison. Then they go on to this good time, which would, I guess, lead to people who are 50 years old or 60 years old, uh, who've been in prison for 40 years, uh, would be released at age 55 instead of age 75. I guess there's some category there. Yes, sir. And they had several other things. Okay. Now, what, what, what are and some facts was about also, that? And there was also testimony that the Department of Corrections was using a risk assessment interest 
instrument to identify the low-risk prisoners. So Isn't it true that one of the main programs that they were — that was cited as uh, providing a safeguard is uh, evidence-based rehabilitation programs? Yes. yes, Your Honor. All the uh, all the witnesses from the state, the interveners, the local witnesses, uh, our experts, they all found that those would help reduce crime. And that they would be most effective uh, if used in the community, but they would be effective also if they were in the and What's the general record of the success of rehabilitation efforts? Well, different — you can't say generally because different programs have different records. What did, but we what did Congress think when it enacted the, the, uh, the, the Sentencing Reform Act? I don't know, Your Honor. I have this question, um, and if it goes just to remedy, yes, sir. recognize the district court has to be given considerable discretion. Uh, it shows the 137.5 figure because it's halfway between 145 and 130. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I, I think that certainly the Prison Litigation Reform Act means that you have to, if, you're, if there's going to be a release order, it must be releasing the minimum amount Yes. Uh, that will af affect the purposes of, of the remedy order. Um, there was substantial expert opinion that 145, uh, 145 percent would be sufficient. Uh, isn't, doesn't the evidence indicate to you that at least 145 ought to be the beginning point, not 137.5? Well, and I understand I there, there were more. If, Correct me if I'm wrong. There were more experts that testified that 145 would work than there were that 130 was necessary. No, I, I, I respectfully disagree with the record, Your Honor. The 145 figure came from a report by the former governor, Duke Majin, and, and a group that he organized, and they said that they could operate a crowded system at 145 percent of capacity. And that figure was high, the district court found because it didn't take into account health care needs. And, and it didn't take into account health care needs, which is the issue here. And our experts testified that because it didn't take into account health care needs, 130 uh, percent was the better number. It's the number that the strike team had thought of, uh, uh, the, the administration's own strike team. It's the number that these professional experts uh, believed would be sufficient to remedy the population. And back to my answer to Justice Alito's question is the health care facilities themselves were built to uh, provide services to only 100 percent of health care services to only 100 percent of the prisoners. So but the experts, 137. The, the, the experts uh, that were testifying were quite aware of the fact that overcrowding uh, related to uh, the constitutional violations. That was their whole theory. Yes. And any number of them suggested that 145 I, I think there might have been only one. One expert suggested 145. Uh, most of, I think most, the majority of the experts uh, suggested 130. The court found, and it's not been challenged here, is clearly erroneous, that the weight of the evidence went to 130. They wanted to do uh, what you're saying, which was minimize the intrusion, <coughs> maximize the population. So, to, even though they found the court had ample basis to issue an order saying it should be 130, they said in an abundance of caution and to give the, in a, to give the state the benefit of the doubt and to make sure we're going to bump it up an extra seven and a half percent. I see no evidence in the record that the states uh, that that, uh, that uh, pardon me that, that your clients said that 145 wouldn't work. 
I think uh, maybe um, you can answer. Did the expert maybe you can answer, counsel? Please. Thank you. My recollection of the testimony was is that the, our expert said it had to be get down to 130 in order to, for the other remedies to be effective, Your Honor. The expert who gave the 145. Pardon me? The expert who gave the 145. There was no expert. Who, well, there's one expert who said maybe in the best of circumstances it could get to 145. All the others talked about 130 percent. Let's go to the one who's used the 145 right. figure. He was a psychologist, Your Honor. He was a he was a he was a psychologist who has expertise in prison health care. And did he say that at 145 you could de deliver health care safely? He was equivocal on that point. He thought he said that it, at the outer reaches it may, might be true. But I want to emphasize that uh, the district court has uh, allowed the state to come back in at any time to modify its order and to modify this percentage point if the circumstances change. So, Mr. since Mr. Spector, there, there, there has been at least two significant changes. One is the good time credit. The California legislature did pass a law that uh, ups the good time credit and also uh, addressing the probationers and the parolees yes, with technical violators to divert them from the system. Do you have any uh, information about what effect that legislation was passed January? It was passed, I think, last year. Um, I think it went into effect in July of last year, um, I, I believe, if that's what, what you're referring so to. So do we, do we know at, at all what effect it has had? Um, it has had a marginal effect on reducing the population. There have been uh, no reports that it has led to an increase in crime. But to get back to my earlier point, and your point, Justice Kennedy, about the, the, the remedy and that it should be the least intrusive possible, this order um, is set to take effect over a two-year period. And during that two-year period, if Mr. Phillips is correct that the, the uh, uh, conditions are constitutional and that they can deliver services at a 145 percent, then the state is free to come in and make a motion to, pr to bring those changed circumstances to the court. And if anything, this court has been incredibly sensitive to the, to the needs and desires of the state. And it, it was extremely reluctant to end this order in the first place, and it would, and it would bend over backwards to give the state discretion while- I, I, I don't happen. see a finding by the three-judge court that uh, 145, um, is it? Uh, would not be an efficacious remedy. I, I, I know that it. I, yeah. I know that it went to, for 137. Mr. Yes, Honor, I don't think. I don't think it's explicitly said 145, but I think it discussed the 145 figure in the context of the of the fact that it didn't provide for health care services. So it discounted that a little bit and went down about seven percent. But it came close to that figure, I believe. Can, can I ask you a hypothetical question that I, I know is not your case, but let's say you had uh, the district court entering an order saying you have to bring it down to 137.5 in two years. That will, as a practical matter, result in the release of 40,000 prisoners. The state comes back and makes a showing supported by experts saying, look, if you give us four years, we can reach the figure without releasing any prisoners. 
Do you think it would violate the Prison Litigation Reform Act for the district court to say, no, I want this done in two years, not four years, and we just have to deal with the fact there are going to be 40,000 prisoners out on the streets? Well, the Prison Litigation Reform Act requires the court to give substantial weight to the public safety implications of its decision. So um, under those circumstances, it's possible — under those hypothetical circumstances, there's always — possibility that in those cases the uh, degree of public safety uh, problems might outweigh the harm. That, as you said, that's not this case. They found that uh, we could do it. And they, the, the three-judge panel found that the state could reduce the population safely. And there was no suggestion in, any, in the record that this two- or four-year period would make that much of a difference. You have to put the um, — the 40,000 or 35,000 figure in context, California re- releases 120,000 prisoners every year on parole. That's a lot of prisoners. And the, the findings of the district courts are even when the California increases the number of parolees in the communities, that doesn't increase the crime rate. What's so the, the slow, the what court, is the recidivism rate for those parolees? Well, it depends on the risk of the parolees. The high risk In one, general, what is the recidivism rate? Well, overall, the risk is around 70 percent. But if you, for low-risk prisoners, the risk is 17 uh, percent uh, who we violate. And I'm sorry, I, I couldn't. What was the, the first? The first number, when you take all parolees altogether, it's 70 percent. Seven zero. Seven zero. Because within three years. That's what the situation we have now, and that's the situation that the governor, the secretary, the, the court described as a failure. Uh, with parole reform, you could reduce that number in, in many ways, and the court described how you could do that. But for but the, the, the low-risk low prisoners, prisoners, it's, it's 17 percent. And California has a, a risk, assessment, risk assessment instrument, which the court found could be used to make sure that what happened in Philadelphia doesn't happen again. Well, that means that of the, of the low risk, if only the low risk people are released, around 3,000 of them are going to commit another crime. They, but they, they don't have to be released. First, I want to make sure I emphasize the point that this is a crowding reduction measure. You don't have to release 35,000 prisoners. They, are, they don't have to be released if you can build enough cells. Or you can divert, or you can improve the parole system so that. Um, Parole violators don't commit so many crimes if you offer rehabilitation alternatives, if you provide um, a number of diversion into the community. There are a number of other options short of releasing prisoners. And the, and the 17% 70 percent figure, figure includes the 17 percent figure goes to exactly my concern. This is going to have, uh, it seems likely this is going to have an effect on public safety. And the experts can testify to whatever they but, want. But you know what? If this order goes into effect, we will see. But the, we will see, and the people of California will see. Are there more crimes, or are there not? Well, based on the experience in other jurisdictions, the court found we wouldn't. And I want to just add, want to clarify one point, Your Honor. Um, the 70 percent figure includes doesn't it always include crimes. It includes lots of technical parole violators, people who've missed their appointments, for example. So it's not as grave as some of the figures that have been thrown by the by the other side. Is there any likelihood? Is, is there any other? A case where the prison reduction has been done under the PLRA, or is this the first first one? It's the first one to reach this court, obviously. There have been a few others that have been resolved by consent. 
as I understand it, or not appealed. But just a few. Is there any evidence on uh, I, I, I see the, the, their suggestions that the, the technical parole violators go elsewhere, that yes, the sir. elderly and infirm prisoners, yes, uh, some of them be released, right. uh, that good time credits for older people where it would have effect be, be increased, and also halfway houses and uh, other kinds of uh, prison facilities, which used to be called uh, less res- uh, less uh, physically restrictive punishments, or taking the money you save and building new prisons. Okay. That seemed to be the gamut. Is there any evidence, statistically or otherwise, because it used to be that states did rely on halfway houses that relied upon, they relied upon uh, 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 certain camps, prison camps, for example, uh, and some of them were pretty tough. Uh, and there were a whole range of what used to be called intermediate punishments. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, all right. Is there any statistical evidence on the part, on the point that is bother, that uh, Justice Alito raised? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, that, as to whether these did or did not result in higher crime rates? Well, the evidence was, and the Court found, and again, it's not clear error, that these programs were not were more effective than prison in reducing recidivism, and they uh, were less expensive. And, and that's part of the reason why the three-judge panel concluded that a reduction in the prison population would increase crime. Counsel, one of the things that concerns you about this type of institutional reform litigation yes, is sir. that the state's responsible for a lot of different things. Yes, sir. I mean, what happens when you have this case, another district court ordering the state to take action with respect to you know, environmental damage, another court saying well, you've got to spend this much more on education for disabled, Another court saying you've got to spend this much more on something else. How, how does the state sort out its obligations? Does it say, well, I, we would I'll, prefer- I'll spend more money to build prisons, but I'll violate this other district court order saying I have to spend more money to be build water treatment plants? Well, Your Honor, in this particular case, I know you like your particular case, and you want the state to say, this is where I'm going to put my money. But But the point is, it's a budget prioritization that the state has to go through every day, and now it's being transferred from the state legislature to federal district courts throughout the state. Well, I believe the federal courts have an obligation to enforce the Constitution and the laws. No, no, I believe that as well, counsel. (laughs) What I'm saying is that you have conflicting orders from different district courts telling them you've got to comply with the Constitution by spending $8 billion here, and another court saying I've got another constitutional problem of my own, and you've got to spend $8 billion over there. What is the state supposed to do in that situation? Well, my, my simple answer to your question, Your Honor, and I don't mean to be flippant, but they have an obligation to follow the, the federal law, constitutional law, and other laws. And if they're not, then the federal court has an obligation to impose a remedy. In this particular case, uh, the state has a choice. He can either incarcerate 140,000 prisoners in a system built for 80,000, or it can incarcerate a a lesser number. If it chooses to incarcerate 148,000 prisoners in a space built for 80, it's going to incur certain obligations. And we believe, as I said in answer to Justice Breyer's question, the state could choose to use uh, less restrictive punishments, alternative punishments, get the, a better bang for their buck, have more public safety. But that's if we if the court imposed that kind of a rule, then uh, the state would be here saying it's it's vi- it's violating comedy provisions and, and making policy choices for the state, which it shouldn't. I believe in this case the court 
gave the state the maximum degree of flexibility to make all the policy choices surrounding the, surrounding the incarceration of these prisoners. You just the Constitution prevents the state from incarcerating somebody and then not providing them the basic medical care they need to get, escape from the prison and not die before their sentence is out. And that's what we have here. Thank you. If, if you take the state's concession that it can meet uh, a goal in five years and the federal court order is two years, we're talking about three years. Uh, is there any indication of how fast the state's uh, remedy would click in? Are we talking maybe about a 5% well, differential for the last three years? Or, or? Well, that's, there are a lot of things the state can do quickly. For instance, it can reform its parole system. It cannot reincarcerate technical parole violators. It can no, no. I, I'm saying assuming that yeah. compare what the state concedes that it will do with what the court has ordered it to do. The state, I just want to remind you that the governor proposed to the legislature that he reduce the prison population. He said it could be done safely by the same amount, roughly 37,000 prisoners in two years. So what the court found was basically what the governor had believed was safe. The five-year, the five-year period is longer. And the five-year period is longer because it takes time to construct the facilities that the that the state wants to construct, I believe. That's the major difference between the two remedies. But the other methods, the good time credits, parole reform, diversion, those can be implemented very quickly, and uh, the, those substantial reductions can be accomplished safely in that amount of time. So should the court have said two years for everything but construction? Would, wouldn't that have been a more narrowly tailored um, remedy? Well, the states — Except that they, well, I was, there was going to be no construction adequate because there was no money. Right. And the state has, um, has not really put up the money to construct those new prisons. This case has been ongoing since 2006, and they've hardly constructed anything. Even if it was a more narrow remedy, the Court found that construction wouldn't be a viable alternative. My time is up. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Phillips, you have three minutes left. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, just a few points. Uh, first of all, with respect to the state of the record and what was proffered and what was not proffered, if you look at the uh, Joint Appendix at 2085, there's a specific proffer that is made uh, by the interveners in that context. I mean, I'm sorry, this is a specific proffer made by the state of the uh, — I'm sorry, what page was that? 2085, that's volume uh, six of the and, and it's at that point where the plaintiffs, the intervening plaintiffs say, we'd like to put on evidence of constitutional violations. And Judge Carlton says, twice this Court has said, we will not receive that evidence. You've made a clear, a, a, as clear a record as you can. Please don't waste our time. And then later at 2338, which is again in volume six, where we enter uh, Mr. December, who's the Assistant Secretary of CDCR in charge of Healthcare, he specifically says, I've read, I've read the December declaration and it will not be received to the extent that it says the state is in compliance. So we've, we've made our efforts. I, I'm sorry. We were rebuffed. I, I, I don't know what the declaration said. Is the actual declaration in the record somewhere? Yes, the, I believe the actual declaration is in the record. All right. So, uh, Mr. Phillips, sorry, but on a, on a different subject, does the state stand by its representation that it can do this without any public safety impact in five years? 
Yes. I mean, we, we made that submission to the Court, and we, and we believe that we could comply with it. That's that remains it. true, notwithstanding uh, budget uh, well, it, it's economic the, differences, budget differences. Look, the, I mean, the, the Plaintiff's Counsel talks about all of the things that you can do, and if you, if you look at 70A of the, the jurisdictional statement appendix, it specifically says that there's, this, there's a line. Above the line, we can implement, and that will get you about 16,000 inmates, and below the line, you need legislation in order to implement these things. But the reality is that, that any time you say you're going to release 30,000 inmates in a very compressed period of time, I guarantee you that there's going to be more crime and people are going to die on the streets of California. I mean, that, uh, there's no way out of that particular box. But if there were five years, you think you could do it without any public safety impact in the way that you told the court you could? I, I think so, but I'm still concerned because the district court in this specific says we said we have not evaluated the, the safety impact of each of the states, of the elements of the state's proposed plan. And it seems to me they had an obligation to do that. The other point I want to make with respect to Justice Kennedy's question is that there is not a shred of evidence that 137 and a half makes any sense whatsoever. And that is a pulled out of the air number. There, theirs was aspirational. None of that is based on what is the constitutional violation that exists at the time you adopt that particular percentage. And it seems to me that's the entire problem of this entire this exercise, which is to say we're going to fix this across the board rather than what would make much more sense, which is to evaluate these matters facility by facility, to evaluate these matters on the basis of the various discrete elements of how you can reduce the prison population, and to do it in, in conjunction with a receiver who is in place, who can help to implement this in a very systematic way, and that will get us to where we want to get to. So why didn't you give the Court that as your plan? The Court gave you absolute discretion to implement the plan that you wanted. It said, we don't want to do facility by facility because we want you to figure out where you need to implement. So your plan didn't do that. Why? Either in your five-year plan or in your two-year plan. Because the district court's order said you're going to have to reach 137.5 percent in two years, period. That's the categorical rule. And the first time we went in to suggest something above the 137.5, Judge Henderson said, I'm not hearing that. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Phillips, Mr. Spector, the case is submitted.